platform process to restart. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning to you on Wednesday the 22nd of July. I'm Richard Harris bringing you Money for Nothing today. Your business headlines. Apple sells 35% more iPhones but disappoints the market. The stock plunges 8% in the aftermarket. This is the core product, people. This is it. Uh, Apple depends so heavily on the iPhone. So if it has lower uh, sales than had been estimated, that's probably a problem. News from Microsoft and Yahoo also worry the market. Markets pick up the mood and trade down across the board. And in other news, the level of assets in exchange-traded funds now exceeds that held by hedge funds for the first time, illustrating how things have changed for investors in the last six years. And your fact for the day. eBay, who bought PayPal for $1.5 billion in 2002, has just sold it to the stock market for $50 billion US dollars. Nice work if you can get it. Wednesday's Money for Nothing is packed. First up will be Kim Doe of Bearings Asset Management to help us understand last night's markets. Then we host Aidan Yao of AXA Investment Management, who will lead us through the latest on Asia's emerging markets. And our last segment is a special discussion on China's shadow banking. We've got a panel of two specialists here today, including Alan Locke of the CFA Institute and Andrew Collier of Orient Capital Research. Well, there was a lot of red across the board on the screens last night, although most of the falls were slight. The S&P index closed down half a point at 2,119, having flirted with all-time highs in the last few days. Even Nasdaq, which has broken highs over the last week, was off a fraction to 5,208. The Eurostox index was off a percent to 3,648. And Asia was more positive yesterday, though, as it did not have time to react to the earnings news coming out of the U.S., the Shanghai Composite continued its recovery up 0.7% to 3,957. There was a free son of happiness intraday as it crept over the 4,000 level. Hong Kong was up half a percent to 25,536, and the Nikkei was up 1% to 20,842. Brent oil bubbled up a touch to $57.04, while gold was flat after its recent falls at $1,102 an ounce. The US long bond rose a little to yield 2.33%. Well, on the line, we have Kim Do, who's head of multi-asset at Bearings Asset Management in Hong Kong. He runs multi-asset portfolios, so he has a pretty good view of the big picture. And it also means I can ask you anything. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Um, uh, I am very happy to... um to, to talk to you this morning because uh, Hong Kong weather is so horrible. Yes, well, Hopefully I understand you're on the phone as, as a precaution. Um, uh, Kim, let me set the scene. At the end of last week, Fed Reserve Chairman Janet Yellen was saying the economy was so strong that interest rates have to go up. And then just two days later, we have a big fall in gold, weaker tech earnings, and now the market's worried about slower growth and deflation. And that means no interest rate rises. Uh, can you clear it up for us? Uh, no, I, uh, we, we do think that um, the U.S. economy is traveling quite well. And um, uh, we think that, in fact, most asset classes, um, whether you talk about properties or or the economy or, or the equity markets in the U.S., actually, most of them have normalized. The only thing which is not normalized in the U.S. is um, the Fed fund rate. 
So we think that um, definitely uh, Ms. Yellen and the Fed board will do whatever it takes to try to normalize interest rates to some extent. And therefore, we think that September is a window for them to do so. Do you think they're a bit late to the party? I mean, the markets have, have had a pretty good run. Um, I, I think that uh, they, I mean, the, the Fed board has been very cautious in terms of um, raising interest rates. And um, I, I, I personally, we, we, we think that they're a bit late, yes. But the market doesn't think so. In fact, the market doesn't think that uh, the Fed will raise interest rates in September. They think that it will be later, like December. Uh, so, um, so we think that uh, you know, the, the party may continue if uh, the consensus is right, but we tend to be more cautious. So uh, could it be actually bad news then if, when interest rates go up because the market's been anticipating it for so long? Uh, are we likely to get quite an adverse reaction? We could on the day or in the week, but then afterwards, I think that uh, investors will uh, think about uh, the reasons for uh, raising interest rates again. And I think that it all depends on what Ms. Yellen is going to uh, talk, uh, is going to say uh, in her statement that she would prefer to do it very gradually, that it is only a normalization of interest rates, she's not going to be too hawkish, and so on and so forth. So I think that if she used um, soft words to describe her action, I think that the equity market will recover faster than the bond market. We think that the bond market is uh, actually uh, or will be under pressure, more under pressure when she raises interest rates. But a bond market under pressure often puts equities under pressure as well. And this rise in rates could actually lead to a secular, quite a permanent rise in rates, which could be very bad for the bond market. Um, we think that uh, the bond market has already priced it in to a certain extent. But what I'm saying is that um, if the bond market were to weaken, um, then it, it will take longer for the bond market to recover because this is the start of the rate hike of, uh, phase in the U.S. Whereas the equity market at least can still enjoy the, 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 the profits in the economy. And so we think that investors, if anything, may be t tempted to switch out of bonds into equities in order to try to hedge themselves against a stronger economy. So that's why we, we still uh, think that the equity market will do better than the bond market, at least of the next 12 months. But bonds tend not to like inflation, but we've seen the gold price uh, tumble in the last few days, which actually is an indication of deflation. Do you think the gold price is telling us anything? No, we, I, I don't think so. I think that gold at the moment is uh, heading towards uh, its marginal cost of production, which is somewhere between 800 to $1,000, uh, like any other commodity trading in, in, in the global uh, markets. Uh, so I don't think that one should use gold as an indicator for either deflation or inflation. When we look at the U.S. economy, we are noticing that the unit uh, labor costs has started to rise. I think that the U.S. has run out of cheap labor, uh, unskilled labor, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, they, they will have to face higher inflation rates. So, so we think that what the Fed is doing is, is absolutely correct. And as a result of that, uh, we think that there will be a movement out of bonds into equities, at least, as I said, over the next uh, 12 months. And, and are you eating your own cooking? Is that what you're doing in your own portfolios? <laughs> In our own portfolios, we own very, very few bonds. 
uh, we basically are barbelled, meaning that we take a, a position in equities and U.S. dollar cash, and we own very, very few bonds. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Kim, my friend. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank uh, you. And that's uh, Kim Doe, who's head of multi-asset uh, Asia at uh, Bearings Asset Management. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. Well, breaking news this morning are the Apple results, which is why Money for Nothing gets up so early. Uh, and they disappointed they more than doubled sales in China, which pushed third quarter revenues and earnings just ahead of market forecasts. Julie Hyman of Bloomberg fills us in. The company's earnings per share coming in four cents above estimates. Not a surprise, right? Apple tends to beat estimates. It's that iPhone number, right? 47.5 million iPhones in the third quarter. The estimate was for 48.8 million phones. This is the core product, people. This is it. Uh, Apple depends so heavily on the iPhone. So if it has lower uh, sales than had been estimated, that's probably a problem. On the other hand, the average selling price in the quarter for the iPhone was 659.91. Average selling price. The estimate there was for about $636 per phone. So you sort of have a little bit of a balance going on there, but still definitely something to note here. The iPad average selling price was below estimates, $415. The estimate about $426. I'm looking here at the max sales in the quarter, 4.8 million max sold in the third quarter. Uh, that matched estimates. So there you don't really have an issue. We are also getting at least one number that I see that is a forecast for the fourth quarter. It's one that's pretty much in line. So is that good news or bad news? Well, Apple's stock tumbled by as much as 8% in after-hours trading. So even though Apple's beaten earnings forecasts for the last two years, investors still want more. Uh, China revenues leapt, uh, leapt 112% and uh, is now narrowly trailing uh, the U.S. as their main market. And the iPhone 6 has been the top-selling smartphone in the world for 10 consecutive months. So actually, even though those figures um, weren't as uh, attractive as people were hoping, Things aren't so bad. Emily Chang of Bloomberg. Listen to these words from Tim Cook. He's talking about stellar. We're thrilled. He's throwing out these statistics from China and India and Korea where, you know, they're seeing two times the market in a market that's that's shrinking. The sales grew still 35 percent year over year, which is three times the market worldwide. So, you know, you got to put it in perspective, I think. Yes, it's a slight miss, but Apple is still selling more phones than most anyone. So it's not too bad. Apparently, the Twitterati were uh, talking about uh, Tim Cook's uh, excessive comments about how well things are going and superimposing it with the price of the Apple share price falling 8%. So you just can't please everyone. Uh, Earnings for other tech stocks weren't so good either. Microsoft's decision to abandon the smartphone market meant writing down the handset business it acquired from Nokia by $7.5 billion, which gave its largest ever quarterly net loss, pushing it into a loss of $3.1 billion. But excluding that charge, profit was actually $0.62 a share against expected 58 So, again... Not too bad. Yahoo also missed, although turnaround CEO Marissa Mayer said the company's made great progress. As you know, Yahoo has been in a bit of trouble. It's now 8.15. The government public transport fare concession scheme is being extended to green minibuses in phases from March 29th. Using a designated octopus, elderly people aged 65 or above and eligible persons with disabilities can travel on green minibuses with the Scheme logo for just $2 per trip. For details, please visit the Labor and Welfare Bureau's website.
Well, the BRICS Group of Emerging Economies on Tuesday launched its new development bank in Shanghai. Uh, the NDB will lend money to developing countries to help finance infrastructure projects. The bank's expected to issue its first loans early next year. Tanvi Madam of the Brookings Institute in Washington spoke to the BBC and provides the detail. The idea was conceptualized in 2012 by the BRICS countries: Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, and China. And the idea is that each country will pool in equal amounts of money. At the moment, it's 50 billion dollars. It's supposed to go up to 100 billion dollars over the next couple of years, and also has a contingent、uh, reserve arrangement of about 100 billion dollars, which China will contribute the most to. The idea is for it to give out loans, especially for infrastructure projects in the five. Countries and potentially in other emerging markets or developing countries.、Uh, this is supposed to be the five countries say not a、uh, alternative、uh, to the existing institutions, including the World Bank,、uh, but a supplement to it. Well, we now have、uh, Aidan Yao of Axie Investment Managers,、uh, who's Asia's, Asia's senior emerging Asia economist,、uh, to shed some light on all of this.、Uh, good morning, Aidan. Morning,、um, Aidan. First of all, let's talk about some of these non-aligned、uh, programs that China, especially, is sponsoring the AIIB and this new、uh, development bank.、Um, what do you think of them? There seems to be a lot of、uh, positive feeling about them in the markets. Sure. No, I think、uh, structurally speaking, this is、uh, something that helps to correct the mismatches of、uh, global capital flows. Now we know that、uh, traditionally Asia packs, especially China, Japan, and a、uh, number of uh, emerging uh, market Asian countries, has been、uh, high savers. But、uh, they're underdeveloped capital market. It's、uh, forcing them to. Invest a lot in the developed market、uh, sovereign bonds, i.e., U.S. Treasuries. In the current environment, you have、uh, very ultra low interest rate. So that means that the returns that、uh, the Asian savers get from their investment is very low. At the same time, that、uh, Asian being underdeveloped, mostly underdeveloped countries. Still have a lot of need for infrastructure build-up, and uh, uh, some of these countries have been borrowing from、uh, developed world through the hot money inflows. So that's obviously、uh, putting them in a vulnerable position. So it's really looking at trying to stabilize the. They're looking to try and stabilize their financial position, but it's kind of interesting if you're a port if you're looking at things as a portfolio manager,、um, and you're China. Instead of putting your spare cash in the U.S. bond markets, you're almost looking at putting it in private equity. Exactly. So I think that this AIIB,、uh, the、uh, the brick banks, and the one row one belt is essentially try to divert that、uh, low return investment into something higher return investment,、uh, i.e. infrastructure build up, i.e. certain、uh, part of uh, so um, you know alternative assets like you suggested, the private equities, really gaining higher returns for、uh, the Asian savers, including、uh, China.、Mm. Mm. Let's look at、um, what China's been doing in its stock market recently. We've actually had quite a lot of state intervention. Sure.、Um, is there a concern that this could backfire on the government? You know, if they do get it wrong, everyone's going to blame the government for、um, for losing money. 
Sure. I, I think, you know, the government have done certainly a lot in the last uh, couple of weeks to try to put a floor under the market. Uh, this is an extraordinary period of time, you know, between second half of June to early part of July. Uh, on a daily basis, we have a 5 to 6% correction in equity market. So this is a very sort of a crisis mode. Uh, government have done a lot in terms of, uh, you know, market-oriented policies, but also this is some administrative policies, which uh, in the eyes of foreign investors, it may seem uh, a very heavy-handed intervention in the market. But I would suggest that, you know, uh, during the time of a crisis, uh, uh, this kind of uh, rescue measures have been fairly common uh, in the developed market. You know, post-9-11, the U.S. market was closed for a couple of days. Uh, post the GFC, the U.S. government have alterated a number of uh, government institutions to provide support to the market. And if you look at Japan, the authorities and through the BOJ has been buying the uh, uh, equity index uh, stocks uh, in the markets as a part of their regular QE operation. So what what we see in China over the last couple of weeks is uh, put clearly the uh, rescue measures during a time of a, cri- a crisis period. So in that regard, I think it's important for the government to manage expectations, to let the market know that this is a very extraordinary measure during a very extraordinary period of time. This is not going to be a regular operation going forward. Mm, I also notice in the press that Hong Kong's been praised recently for its activities in buying the market um, when we had the crash in uh, uh, in '97, and, sure. and then uh, launching it as, as the link fund or as a tracker fund. Sorry, so um, uh, so plenty of presidents be getting involved in the market, but the Chinese government always seems to be so deeply involved. That's right. I, I think you know the Chinese uh, uh, capital market, especially the equity market, is still very much a policy-driven market. Even when we talk about the, the rally, the starting point of the rally since the late uh, second half of last year, it was on the back of some encouragement from Chinese authorities that uh, you know equity market is cheap and it's a it's a place that will reflect future reforms of the economy. So there's definitely that official encouragement for. Uh, investor to participate in the uh, in the equity investment, and then when we have the, the correction that was uh, uh, you know uh, triggered by the uh, CSRC uh, tackling the uh, margin financing, the leverage part of the uh, the market that caused the whole thing to unravel, and then the most recent recovery it's on the back of uh, the uh, rescue measures coming from the authority. So it's clearly you know. China, like many emerging markets, uh, capital market, is still very much influenced by uh, by uh, government by, policies. By, by policy. Okay, moving away from China, um, let's look at some of the other emerging markets sure. around Asia. Wh- which ones are sort of at the top of your hit list at the moment? Well, it, it's, this is a really tough pick because uh, if you look at uh, across the globe, that uh, in our view, the equity market, uh, sorry, the uh, the emerging market is really the weak link of uh, the global economic recovery so far. That that uh, the, the, the commodity-driven uh, emerging markets have been obviously hit hard by the weak commodity cycles. Certain uh, Asian countries is facing, you know, uh, idiosyncratic downside risk like China and South Korea is facing MERS outbreak. What we currently see in terms of the most recent data is that uh, the 
uh, Central Eastern European emerging market countries are actually doing better mm. because of their closer proximity to the eurozone economy, which other than Greece is actually on a solid footing of uh, recovery. So that's obviously provide a bit of a support. Yeah, might, might even provide a bit of support for Russia that's too. Right. <laughs> well, Aidan, thanks very much for coming in. Uh, we must appreciate that. That's Aidan Yao, who's uh, the uh, senior emerging Asia economist for Accent Investment Management. Well, total debt levels in China are now reputed to be over 200% of GDP, one of the highest in the world, somewhat higher than Greece. The shadow banking sector itself is thought to be about as big as the traditional banking sector. Shadow banking comprises lending off balance sheet by non-banking institutions and normally prospers where there's a lot of spare cash chasing higher yields. Well, the CFA Institute recently held a roundtable discussion on China's shadow banking and the possibilities of systemic risk. To speak about it, we have Alan Locke, Director of Capital Markets Policy of the CFA Institute, on the phone. And also, as we thought we'd have a bit of a panel, we've got Andrew Collier, who's the MD of Orient Capital Research, who wrote an article about shadow banking for the Financial Times in April. Good morning, gentlemen. Hi, good morning. Alan, uh, let's start with you first. In uh, Can you give us a bit of a briefing about the background on shadow banking? Well, if you were, if you were to define shadow banking, it is not exactly that easy to determine because there isn't a global definition that is used by all entities on shadow banking. And at CFA Institute, we define it to be unconventional banking, anything that is not within the, 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 the usual banking system to fall under this jurisdiction. But that itself would already eliminate quite a lot of uh, trust activity because many of these are actually originated from the banks. And what we see today is that the shadow banking in terms of the asset size, the size of the assets in China is not that big if you compare it to US or even the Europe because it is uh, just 4% of the total global world assets in shadow banking. But that's 4% of China, but that's a big number. Uh, what I mean is it's 4% of global asset. And in terms of China economy in, in, the, in, the, in the world, it is not uh, that sizable and it is still below the GDP of uh, uh, China. Andrew, we've had you on Money for Nothing before and your views were uh, maybe a little bit more aggressive. Um, yeah, I think shadow banking is a systemic risk in China because uh, it's basically a lot of uncontrolled flows. Uh, the government, through the, the China Banking Regulatory Commission and others, did crack down on some shadow banking through the trusts, which are kind of uh, imitation banks owned by the provinces. And they've also cracked down a bit on uh, bank loans uh, that are shadow banking loans. But for the most part, a lot of that money is still sloshing around out there, and uh, it poses a risk uh, to the economy. Alan, your uh, uh, roundtable where you, you had a number of your members come in and, and talk about this, um, they were looking at this as quite a big risk looking forward. Uh, yes, especially for our members who is uh, closer to the source of the issue, which is in Asia-Pacific, um, close to about, if I can remember correctly, is about 40 or 50 or percent of our members feel that it is going to be a systemic risk, whereas on a global level, the level is, the, the, the kind of consensus is much lower at over 20%. So this is a kind of divergent view that the Western uh, world has on the shadow banking risk in China compared to those who are in Asia-Pacific itself. And um, uh, uh, 
Andrew, your um, uh, your view though, it sounds as if um, Alan isn't is a little bit more sanguine, perhaps, than you were looking at. I think you were you were concerned about the insurance companies last time round. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, you've got a situation where uh, the insurance companies have taken the investors' money and have become the largest investor in the infrastructure industry in China. Uh, you've got a lot of shadow banking loans uh, lent, uh, borrowed or lent from individuals into a lot of property projects owned by local governments that probably will never produce much of a return. So uh, the government does have adequate money overall, but there's a lot of people in the food chain who are going to get hurt when the property market uh, starts uh, collapsing, which is occurring right now. And so that is going to be a, a systemic risk to the overall economy. A lot of this shadow banking was wrapped up into wealth management products uh, that were then sold to investors with, with spare liquidity. Um, uh, Alan, uh, was this an issue among your roundtable members? Uh, yes, because in terms of the wealth management product, the biggest problem is that many of these uh, wealth management product platforms, they repackage the loan and sell it to uh, investors who might not be aware of the risk. And even though on paper it is not guaranteed in terms of principal and interest return, many of these uh, uh, people that sell this kind of product, they verbally give implicit guarantee, which is... Mm, something that investors need to be aware of, and this is this can be a problem. The moment at the moment, the size of it is not uh, big, but definitely is growing quite fast. Uh, Alan, there's no. Uh, sorry, Andrew, uh, there's no doubt that the government is aware of this problem, but do you think they're going to be able to uh, maybe solve it or reduce some of the uh, possible risks fast enough? They could shut it down pretty quickly. Um, there's about 24 trillion or maybe more like 30 trillion uh, from just WMPs and trusts alone. The problem is that a lot of local governments need the money. Most of the money, about 90% in my estimation, has gone to local government projects and it's helped uh, prop up their economies at a time when uh, other revenue from land sales and other sources is, is drifting off. So the government's very nervous about shutting off the taps at this point. Well, we're obviously going to have to keep this in mind. It's clearly something that investors are watching out. But I really appreciate uh, both of you gentlemen coming and talking to us uh, about it today. That's Alan Locke, Director of Capital Markets at CFA Institute, and Andrew Collier, Orient Capital Research. And um, just a final wrap on what the markets are doing this morning. Yes, the Asian markets are picking up the same uh, malaise that we saw in Western markets last night. Um, they're all down uh, just under 1%. Uh, the Nikkei's at 20,655 and the Aussie market's uh, at 5,644. Um, that's the wrap for Money for Nothing today. Just to say thank you very much for joining us. I'm Richard Harris. And if you want to listen again to this or any other stories, you can find all of our podcasts on the RTHK Radio 3 website. The weather today, it'll be cloudy with showers, which will be heavier times in the morning with a few squally thunderstorms. The maximum temperature will be about 29 degrees during the day. Moderate to fresh southwesterly winds. And the outlook is it's going to remain unsettled with showers in the next couple of days. So just beware of that. Well, stay tuned for Peter Lewis and Business Extra, but first the news read by Samantha Butler. Three Spanish journalists are reported to be missing in Syria. The Spanish Press Federation says there's been no word from the three for more than a week. The BBC's Guy Hedgeco has the latest. Two of them are freelance journalists who work for, for written media and TV, uh, and then the other is a freelance journalist.
Now, they haven't been heard from since uh, July the 11th, um, and the last they heard of them, they were in the city of Aleppo in the north of Syria. But we don't have any information about their whereabouts, and the government, we've heard, is extremely concerned that they may have been kidnapped. A mass funeral ceremony has taken place in Turkey for most of the 32 victims of a suicide bomb attack near the Syrian border on Monday. Mourners clutched the coffins as they were lined up in the courtyard of a mosque before being taken to their hometowns for burial. Turkey's Prime Minister Ahmed Davutoglu says the authorities have identified the suspected attacker. Here's the BBC's Anis Sidram. The Prime Minister just made a statement and announced that they have identified the suspected bomber, but he didn't made it public, the identity, because he said the investigation is still going on and it is a critical moment for the country right now. However, he did mention the possible Islamic State connection and the Prime Minister himself went to Shanurfa, the city where this attack happened, and met with the local authorities. In the latest spat between, sorry, shares in the U.S. technology company Apple have fallen sharply despite the announcement of a big increase in sales. Apple sold 47.5 million iPhones in the past three months. From New York, the BBC's Michelle Fleury reports. The company wouldn't reveal how well its newest product, the Apple Watch, sold. Chief Executive Tim Cook would only say that demand had exceeded supply. But neither this nor $50 billion of revenue in three months could stop investors from being disappointed. Shares in Apple actually fell by 